to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Zoe Ingram. And I'm Emma Harris. And we're broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. So if you've had anything to do with the open science movement or been on any conferences that talk about open science, the open science framework is something that always will come up. Yeah, it definitely does. And uh, we had the chance to talk to Brian Nozick, who is the executive director of the Open Science Center, uh, which is where the open science framework sort of comes from. And we talked to him about loads of really interesting things, uh, pre-registration, how digital culture is affecting science, how you change the norms in science, and also just what, like, in general, what the work of the centre is doing. My name is Brian Nosek. I am uh, on the faculty uh, at the University of Virginia. I've been there since 2002, uh, but I've been on leave for almost seven years now uh, because we spun out in 2013 an, a nonprofit organization called the Center for Open Science uh, from my lab that is an independent uh, nonprofit in downtown Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, and I've been doing that uh, and working with this team ever since. Uh, we've grown to a group of 50, uh, and we are engaged in lots of different activities to try to promote open science. So I'm delighted to be here to have a chance to speak with you. Okay. Um, what, ex what exactly are you doing? So all these activities. Yeah, so the organization, we have uh, a mission to increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility of research. And there are three main categories of activity that we uh, work on to try to help promote this and catalyze it in the community. Uh, the first is uh, providing technology to make it easier for researchers to behave more openly in their research. So most of our team is, in, is a technology team uh, building the Open Science Framework or OSF. Uh, which is a free uh, collaborative management service for researchers to manage their projects, register their designs, track their research lifecycle, store their data and materials, uh, and share papers or reports of any kinds at the end. Uh, and then at, the, at any stage, they can make any parts of that more openly accessible for others to see how it is they got to their claims, the materials or contents behind their claims, et cetera. So the goal with that team is just to make it easier for researchers to manage their own research, to not lose their own research for their own use, but then to preserve and make available any of that work, whatever part of the research lifecycle they're able or willing or can't want to make available to others. So that's the sort of core team is the technology team. Uh, the second team is the policy community team, uh, and the goal with that team is to help facilitate changes in the norms, incentives, and policies uh, that drive research behaviors. And the core challenge that we see that we're trying to help uh, with many others uh, solve is that there is a dysfunctional incentive system. It's more in my interest to publish than to publish accurately. Right? I'm more rewarded for getting into prestigious outlets than I am for having uh, reproducible or transparent evidence. And so the real challenge is that we all sort of recognize those problems in the system, 
And none of us are individually empowered to change the system because it's highly decentralized and there are decision makers in journals, there's decision makers in funding organizations, there's decision makers at institutions, and then there's governmental policies. And all of these things are a mix of creating this environment where my success is dependent on me publishing as often as I can in the most prestigious outlets that I can. So what the policy community team does is tries to work with all of those different agents of change to see if we can facilitate uh, alteration of the policies to align better with scholarly values. So that is sort of the top-down work of working with funders and policymakers, et cetera. Then the other part of the community team is to try to engage with these dozens, hundreds of different groups that are working on these problems in their own communities on their own issues, which is amazing, right? The grassroots network of communities that have been fostering open science in their various groups is, is why open science has caught on over the past few years so much. Uh, and so we're just trying to figure out how do we connect uh, all of those efforts more effectively. There's lots of groups that are doing really interesting things but don't know about other groups across disciplinary boundaries and otherwise. So how can we help to facilitate more communication. So that's the policy community team. The third team is the meta-science team. Uh, and what the meta-science team does is tries to study how science works and how we might do it better. So the big, big part of that work is studying the current state of psychological or, or scientific research. We started in psychology, my home discipline, uh, and have expanded these investigations to study reproducibility of evidence in different domains. Uh, and then the other part of what the meta-science team does is evaluate whether the various interventions we and others are trying are actually working. Uh, and so can we get evidence about whether this change in incentives to the system uh, actually succeeds or does it create unintended consequences that actually undermine uh, the goals of making science work better, work more efficiently, accelerate discovery. So that's the five minute version, I guess, of, of what we do. So <laughs> and it sounds really impressive and super, yeah, cool. <laughs> good, good. Uh, great. It sounds cool whether we deliver. What does work? I mean, do, did you find something that actually does work? Like Yeah, great question. So there are a few different things where we have some good evidence that they're helping in trying to advance uh, openness. So I'll give a couple of examples. One is the simplest intervention that is trying to help change the norms. So it is underestimated how important norms are for how researchers behave. Norms are descriptively, I look around and see what do other people in my discipline do, and norms can be prescriptive. This is what we say we should be doing, what a good scientist does. And a lot of how we learn to be scientists is based on peer influence, what it is we see others in our communities doing. So an, a very easy intervention to try to shift norms is to make visible behaviors that are desired, but people don't recognize that they're happening. Uh, and open behaviors are one of those. So a, an intervention that journals have adopted uh, that we have spent a, uh, some time promoting uh, is uh, badges for behaviors that are open science behaviors. So if you share your data in this paper, you can get a badge for open data. If you share all the materials behind uh, the work, the protocols, the procedures, et cetera, you can get a badge for open materials. If you pre-register your designs in advance to make it really clear what was planned and what was discovered uh, after the fact, then you get a pre-registration badge. 
those badges are tiny incentives for the authors of the paper, right? Getting some indicator on their paper that they get these desirable behaviors. But their real purpose is as normative influences. It's making visible that I, as an author, did these things that you as a reader can see, oh, people in my field, they're starting to share data. I have never observed that before, right? And as more people do it, then it's more observable that, oh, people, this is now becoming a thing, sharing data. So the visibility of the badges is presumed, as many normative interventions work, is makes it easier for people to see that behavior happening and that behavior change is occurring. And so what we found with the first journal that adopted badges in January 1st, 2014, is that in that journal, uh, data sharing rates of was 3%. 3% of the articles in the, in the journal for the prior two years had open data. Within 18 months after introducing badges, 39% of the articles in that journal had open data. Uh, and that was mid-2015. Now, 2019, 70% uh, of the articles in that journal have open data. Uh, now, the badges uh, are away, are, are not powerful in and of themselves. Uh, they are visibility indicators that help to prompt uh, that community evaluation. So that's one that we we've feel good about as an intervention. Now, there's still lots of things to study and limiting conditions and everything else, but the uh, the evidence we have to date suggests uh, some confidence. If I may ask, how did you convince the journal to actually start with the badges? I mean, because in the end, um, they don't have yeah. to do it, right? It doesn't matter for the journal. No, yeah. They don't have to do it. So the early actors on a lot of these interventions are editors that really care about trying to promote good science. And there's editors have lots of competing incentives of their own. Uh, but the particular editor in this case, Eric Ike, was uh, that did the first time, the first one, uh, was just, this was his thing. He said, we're gonna make uh, my journal as robust as possible. So I wanna try this, see what happens. Uh, and uh, his successor, Steve Lindsay, this was at the journal Psychological Science, uh, even increased the way in which they uh, implemented this procedurally in the workflow of the journal. And I think that yielded even better results uh, for uh, gaining adoption. But really, in uh, a lot of these innovations, the early actors are idealists who think we can, I have an opportunity as an editor of this journal to try to promote uh, some change. Likewise, with funders uh, that have uh, done some of these early changes, uh, and with folks in societies or institutions. It relies on those champions who have positions of influence, decision-making authority to say, this is interesting, I wanna try it, uh, and then jump in and do it. So a second example is registered reports. So the idea of registered reports is that instead of submitting your work when it's finished uh, to the journal, here's all the studies I did, here's everything I learned, uh, here's the final report, what you submit to the journal is your plan. Here's the research question I'm interested in. Here's some preliminary experiments, some discovery work that we did to try to get a handle on the phenomenon. And here is the methodology of my critical tests. The journal conducts a review that is focused on, is it an important question? And is the methodology a good test of that question? And if the reviewers and the editor agree, yeah, we need to know the answer to this, then the journal gives an in-principle acceptance then. 
follow through with the methodologies you said you're going to do, show that you did it effectively, you ran the experiments well, and we will publish it regardless of outcome. So the whole idea of registered reports is to remove publication bias, right? This focus on getting exciting, sexy results uh, that incentivize lots of behaviors that reduce the credibility of the claims, right? P-hacking, questionable research practices, ignoring negative results, et cetera. So that what researchers focus on to get the reward of publication is ask important questions and have fabulous methodologies to test those questions. That's exactly what we should be striving for, right? Uh, so the, that process of shifting uh, really changes the incentive system for the author uh, for what they focus on. It also changes the dynamic between authors and reviewers. So when I uh, submit a paper in the normal process, where I've already done all of the work and now I get reviews, when the, when the reviewers point out all the flaws in my methodology, I just feel bad because I've already done the work and I screwed all these things up that they've now pointed out. And so what I do is take all of that, rewrite the paper and then submit it to another journal and hope that those reviewers don't notice those critical flaws, right? That's a bad system. Uh, in a registered reports model, when the reviewers identify those flaws in my methodology, I say, oh, that's great, thank you. I'll revise my methodology that I have not done yet uh, so that I don't have those problems. So it becomes a more collaborative exchange between reviewers uh, and authors to improve the work for actually you. So we can talk a lot more about the model. Oh, please, if you want to say. No, just um, the usual question or usual uh, objection that comes to this kind of publishing uh, mode sort of, uh, well, but what about the creativity? It just disappears along the way, right? Because you have to know exactly at the onset of your, well, you start a PhD basically. And then yeah. you're gonna like, no, okay, I will do this now for three years and that's what I'm gonna be doing. Right, yeah, so th there's an important uh, element of this that you're raising, right? Is this notion there's, so there's a couple of different ways we could talk about it. One is the distinction between discovery-oriented work, exploration, and confirmatory work, testing actual hypotheses. And registered reports is best implemented at present for when you think you have something. So there's all of that discovery work that happens. Almost everything that happens in my lab, we start knowing very little about what we're studying. But at some point along that process, we think we found something, right? And that's the point in time where registered report becomes relevant because we've done that exploratory work. That's all the stuff that we submit at the beginning of the, in the front part of the registered report submission. Here's the question, here's our preliminary evidence. We were looking for this, but then it went this way and here's the sideways. But now we think we have something. And now we wanna propose the critical tests. We wanna test our hypotheses that we've generated rather than just continue uh, more exploratory work. So that tries to, in, in this model, it tries to help make it more explicit when we're doing that very exploratory discovery kind of work and when we actually wanna make a claim uh, that we, we have some phenomenon here uh, that we want to provide some for. But also, once you do the experiments in a registered report that are proposed, you can still add all the exploratory work of those experiments into the paper. You just have to very clearly distinguish. Here's the work as we planned it and the tests that we ran. Here's all the things that happened after the fact. We had no idea that this was going to happen. This is really interesting. But it provides a, a mechanism for being really clear when you're in one mode, discovery hypothesis generating versus the other hypothesis testing. 
So basically, I mean, it's, it's, if I say it correctly, it would also then, uh, the other gain of this is basically that you do not get rid of, um, well, that you report more comprehensively, right? Because usually, I mean, I remember from my own time in the lab, that basically at the end of the story, when you kind of, when you know what you found and everything is very clear, right? I mean, the experiment A led to B, but in reality is like the D before the A and the B came after C and, you know. Um, yeah. So in that way, if I understand correctly, basically you do report all of those A's and B's and Z's uh, before you know how the narrative will look like in the in the end, right? That that's right. So it is a way of trying to promote that we really should be sharing everything. Yeah. Uh, because real science does have lots of false starts and exceptions and things that don't quite work. And those clean and tidy stories that we tell at the end are uh, are ways to make the, the mess disappear. Uh, and that's a polite way of saying oftentimes we actually exaggerate the reliability of our claims in order to tell a good story, right? To focus on that narrative, everything clean and tidy, where the evidence doesn't actually provide that strength, that confidence that we have in it. So one part of what registered reports can do is expose that as the confidence that we have in clean and tidy stories is misplaced. So here's one outcome of the research on registered reports. So the, there are about 220 journals that offer registered reports now. Uh, and so there's some, and it started in two first journals that uh, ones that came out with 2014. So we have some experience uh, with uh, articles coming through this format. Articles that, uh, so looking at the same journals, same articles, register reports, and then traditional articles. The traditional articles, the rate of positive results of the primary outcome is 90%, right? Almost everything works uh, when in the way you usually report. With the registered reports, the rate of positive results is about 40%. <clears throat> about 60% of the primary outcomes are negative results of those key tests that happen right at the end. It minimally exposes is that there is that publication bias that we know is happening is happening potentially at a very large scale, which really changes our understanding of the published literature compared to what's actually happening in the lab. So that's one. The second implication of that is an editor sees that journals that are often registered reports are publishing 60% negative results. And then they say, oh, I can't offer registered reports in my journal. No one will cite that stuff, <laughs> right? And then I'll be the one that ruined my journal's impact. Now we could say that's ridiculous. Editors shouldn't think that way. But of course, it's hard not to think that way, right? That's how journals are rewarded and evaluated, uh, whether we like it or not. So we did, uh, or a couple of groups, not just us, we have done, but others have done as well, have looked at are citation patterns different for registered reports versus regular articles? And it turns out, if anything, uh, registered reports are cited a little bit more uh, than regular papers in the same journals published at the same time. Now, but I would say that there's no difference. Uh, it's, it's equivocal uh, of whether they're better. So the obvious question is, why is that? And we can only speculate why they are. Uh, but the reason I think that's most plausible, having just looked at these, uh, is that the registered report papers are more rigorous because you get review in advance and it improves over time uh, before the research is done. And they're answering questions that people want to know the answers to. 
Because if you have to commit as an editor to saying, we're going to publish this regardless of outcome, what you're deciding is, I want to know the answer to this. And so even if it's a negative result, that's an answer we needed to see because we thought this is a viable idea. This is an interesting path. There's potential implications here. A negative result means more. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I think happens is that in the, the traditional model, it's all focused on the results. Are they exciting enough, innovative enough, sexy enough uh, for us to publish? Uh, whereas in registered reports, is are we asking the right questions? Uh, yeah. you think this is like something that's expanding now, or is it just now at kind of like saturation level? This also could switch, they switched, and the rest stays kind of the way. Um, right. And also, whether those journals who do offer this opportunity, um, possibility, um, are they all life sciences? related, like natural sciences, or are there also social sciences, humanities uh, represented there? Right, good questions. Uh, so the growth rate is accelerating. So we have a, you know, we, we can show you the graph where how many journals have adopted registered reports each year. Uh, and it is every year, it's a larger number of it adopted than the previous year. Uh, so that's a, a signal that people see there's some viability here. We also have some additional uh, and other, there's a number of different meta research groups that are studying registered reports and the data that's coming out will be very useful for understanding its strengths and its limitations. Uh, so that growth rate is happening. It started mostly in uh, behavioral sciences and neuroscience. And so most of the journals represented are in from, you know, sort of social psychology, health psychology sorts of domains uh, through uh, neuroscience. There are other life science journals, and that's where the most growth has been most recently. So like eLife uh, has used registered reports for our uh, reproducibility project in cancer biology, which is well, our final reports for that are coming out soon. That's a big project of our meta science team. Uh, and a big adoption recently is PLOS One uh, just adopted registered reports for everything that they publish. So any domain at PLOS One or Royal Society Open Science, uh, you can submit registered reports for. Uh, and the uh, one Nature Journal offers it now, Nature Human Behavior, but there are a few others, I think, that will be uh, offering it very soon from their internal interest. Uh, Nature has been very keen on this uh, idea. And so there's just a, a growth across many different areas where it's starting to expand. And that'll be really interesting as we study it to see in what domains does it sort of hit a boundary of, oh, this isn't working very well for how we do our work. Uh, it's not clear to me yet if there are those bounds uh, and there's different uh, hypotheses that people have, but it'll be really interesting to see how far it can go. Do you think that something has changed now? So, I mean, there's a study from 2015, right? Uh, where the only 36 of 100 uh, psychology studies could be replicated. Um, do you think the picture is less gloomy now with new psychology studies? The, I, there are two answers. One is, as you noted, you know, that, well, 220 journals, there's a lot of journals. Uh, but 220 journals are offering registered reports now where there were zero five years ago. So, so I have both of those feelings about the, the overall movement, which is the uh, changing a culture is really hard. And we have a long way to go. But the amount of change that has occurred is awesome. It is fantastic. And not just in psychology, there's so many domains where different communities 
have been pursuing ways to try to open up part of the system. That is improving replicability and reproducibility is one aim. It's just promoting transparency as another aim. It's increasing accessibility of the content as another aim. And it's addressing inclusivity of who gets to contribute to, to science. All of these areas are growth areas in how science is changing. Uh, and I don't see any of it slowing anytime soon. To me, at least from my position, I'm curious if you have the same impression, it feels like we're already past that point of this being a sustainable movement. And I don't mean that it's all financed. I mean that it's going to be hard to stop, right? There's lots of things that happen in sciences where something flares up and everybody wonders, oh, will it change? This one, it feels like we're already past the point of questioning, what, will it change? Now it's how do we make sure that it changes in ways that are productive for the goals of the scientific community? And so I'm very encouraged about that. I would definitely, I would definitely concur. I mean, from our experience as uh, now really just going around Europe and talking to different people and delivering those trainings, and our trainings are more about like really what is open science and what what's in it for yeah. you. What can yeah. you do as a career researcher or as a research funder to promote this? Um, it does not seem like we have to really convince people it's a good thing or something that you know, oh, it's, it's useful. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, we, we know. We want to do it, we just don't know how. We don't, we don't, oh, exactly. we don't right. know how to, yeah, we need the infrastructure, we need the help, we need, you know, we need a data steward to tell us how to deal with our data and so on. Uh, yeah, I agree. It can be that the ideology is not enough so that they're needing um, to see the benefits, the personal benefits um, or professional benefits. But I think more and more it's becoming, they get that very quickly. They're like, oh yeah, this is a good thing. Yeah. But how? <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah, I totally agree that it's it, it very much, I think it's two things. It's introducing the concepts of open science and then introducing the tools for doing open science. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We have a theory of change model that we operate by that really reinforces, I think, what you are both just saying, right? There's for some people, it's sufficient to give them a way to do open science. But that's idealists, right, who are motivated by open science. And they want—they just—they don't care what the incentive system is. They don't care what other people are doing. They want to do it because that's internally what they're driven to do. That's a very small portion of the research community that is motivated by open science of its own as an idealist thing. The mainstream has, to, has that interest, right? My spouse runs a lab here at University of Virginia. She doesn't have an open science identity. She wants to use open science as a tool to help her focus on the things that she cares about, which is solving anxiety disorders and how it is that cognitive processes are maintaining those anxiety disorders. So those are the problems that she wants to solve. And if open science can help her solve those, then great. Uh, but a lot of that has to be influenced by seeing that others are doing it seeing the value proposition, providing the appropriate training, like you're describing, the how to actually get this done. And the students in her lab and in my lab and all these collaborations also have to have recognition that this is gonna be rewarded. If, it's, if we don't shift those incentives uh, so that researchers are instead of, so they don't have to make this decision of here are the values that I have and I can behave by those values, but then lose out on my career because these aren't rewarded, or I have to give up my values so that I can have a career 
because other people in my community aren't doing these extra things uh, to make my science more open. So if we don't consistently work on both the how to do it, the making visible that others are doing it, and then the why to do it, those incentives and the policies that support that, we won't get the full transition completed. But I think there's so many people in the community that are working on at every stage of that, uh, that this is happening. We just need to manage it well. I think it definitely needs to come top down and bottom up. This is one of those cases where it has to meet somehow. Um, okay. I would like to object on one thing. I don't think you have to be uh, open science enthusiasts to adopt those values or ideas. I think these are the core values of any actually starting scientist that I'm in science because I want to find out how something yeah. works, because I want to help something, you know, like whatever that is you're researching. But it's usually for the goods of, oh, I mean, you don't go into science careers to be rich, or, you know. I mean, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, so. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and when surveys are done of people about these values, do you value transparency? Do you value reproducibility? 90% plus of researchers say, yes, of course I value those things. Those, that's part of what being a scientist is. So I agree with that. Where the challenge is, is that people have realities that they have to confront. Right, so everyone enters grad school thinking, what I do, well, not every, this is oversimplification, right? But I entered grad school, I'll say, thinking what I'm supposed to do here is study the things I'm passionate about, share what I've learned, and then learn from other people, and then we just keep trying to figure it all out. But what happened very quickly is I realized that the senior graduate students in my lab and program were saying, oh yeah, yeah you gotta do that thing, but, but you gotta get some grants. And you got to write papers. If you don't write enough papers, then you're not going to get the job. And so very quickly, all of those ideals get translated into how the concrete needs to actually be in the field. And a real challenge with decision making in the context of competing interests like this is that concrete rewards, uh, the concrete behaviors that we need to do to be in something can easily dominate over the abstract Right? I want to be doing science for the social good. Well, it's very hard to have that be driving my behavior on a day-to-day basis when what my PI needs from me and what my advancement and what the postdoc needs for me to get the postdoc is get this paper out, get that result, get this written up. Right? Those concrete things can start to infiltrate. Uh, and so that's where if we don't manage the normative part the incentive systems and the policies to help with those grassroots movements, they won't be sustainable uh, because people will be filtered out uh, that don't play by the rules, as it were. But it is kind of happening. I mean, that's the thing. That's what um, mm. what there is a general, well, feeling consensus. There is also some evidence for it that basically the the brightest, the, the best, they quit academia because they just become cynical and disillusioned and just don't know what Yeah. Yeah. So there is a general uh, kind of, we have to do something, right? I mean, that's where yeah. all the, uh, top-down initiatives are, are happening. Also regarding how PhDs are being done, organized, how structured, uh, how PhD students are treated, the mental health of PhD students. I mean, all these topics, they're not in a vacuum. It also, for me, at least, it's very closely related to how the scientific system is being done. And they're open science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wait, can I can leap up like open science actually helping the mental health of PhD students, maybe. Um, yeah. I think it's really good. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's I, system you, you move around it, right? 
Right. Yeah, I totally agree that that all of those are tightly linked uh, to these issues. Right. This is a uh, a cultural system where these are interweaved. The challenge, I think, is that there it's easy to talk about those issues, and all of these issues were talked about with the same kind of vigor when I was in grad school. And if you look at readings from the 1940s, 50s, et cetera, you still see a lot of this stuff as being talked about as the challenges that the scientific research culture have. Now, of course, we might argue that the pressures have been amplified in different ways, and there's lots of ways that the, the level of competition has been changing over time. But these core issues, I think, they, uh, it's, to me, it's very strange that the research community can talk about them, recognize the problems, and not invest the effort to actually study whether the interventions that we're trying are actually addressing the problem. Okay, let's have peer networks. Let's have support communities uh, for grad students. Let's find ways uh, to address mental health X, Y, and Z, implement these new uh, interventions and policies, and then not evaluate them. And then five, we solve that problem, and then five years later, we do the survey again. Oh, Mental health is still really bad. <laughs> oh, geez, I thought we solved that problem. Oh, we better worry about it again. Let's try a bunch of things. Right? This the lack of science studying itself and, and its interventions to try to improve its own culture, I think, has been one of the bizarre gaps uh, that we've seen in our community. And that what's great is that that's changing too. The meta research uh, enterprise has been blossoming across disciplines. Uh, we hosted a meeting. Uh, in September uh, called MetaScience 2019, and it was awesome. It was people from many, many different disciplines all talking about issues of how the scientific process works and how it might work better and what things are happening. Uh, and it just was illustrating how much work has been happening, some of it for a very long time, right, philosophy of science, et cetera, but then how much is happening within uh, different disciplinary communities that really has relevance to start to connect uh, and uh, give us a way to be actively evaluating ourselves like we evaluate the things that we're studying. I know, actually, we also would like to talk about your, um, your initiative to unite all the open science initiatives because um, yeah. I think it's now like kind of moving into critical phase, right? And yeah. uh, we've seen the, the list, the, um, the open science initiatives um, list, there's some activity going on there. And so uh, how far along are you and what are you actually aiming to do? Great question. Yeah, so the um, the impetus of trying to organize this was just the recognition that there are so many activities, so many groups doing things to promote uh, open science, and almost all of them doing them with no resources, right? It's people who are activists, who are passionate about this, who want to try to help change the system, and are doing so at a cost to themselves, uh, right? I could be spending the time in the lab running more experiments, or I could be spending my time on this, trying to help fix science. Well, uh, you know, obviously we think fixing science, well, it's gonna help all of the experiments across all of the labs, so yeah, let's do that. But they're doing so without a strong support network. Uh, they're doing it on their own. Uh, so the prompting of trying to try to align uh, these networks together to grassroots networks promoting open science was to both have a support network, right? That, oh, I'm not alone in this at my institution and, or our small group. There are others like me uh, at these other places doing this and to be sharing resources, 
right? There's people have generated amazing training tools like you have that others might say, oh, instead of having to train, do this from scratch, maybe I can do what they've done uh, and put it at my institution. All that kind of value of trying to connect those services. So NSF, uh, National Science Foundation in the US issued a call for proposals for uh, strengthening networks of networks. We said, that's perfect. That's exactly what this is. <laughs> There's all these networks. Uh, more than 100 acro globally across different disciplines with different areas of focus uh, for open science. Let's try to create a mechanism, uh, a proposal to NSF to help foster the connections across all of these different communities. So that's the uh, proposal that went in just a few weeks ago. So we'll learn sometime uh, in mid-2020, presumably, whether they will get funded. Uh, but even if it doesn't get funded, there's now because of developing that proposal and just because of common interest across many other groups uh, doing this, uh, there's now a little bit more coherence, connectivity uh, across these communities. So if it is funded, what it will support is uh, funding for uh, just that small stimulus funding uh, that can often help communities do some event or activity, right? So rent, funds for renting a room uh, or for food to support uh, an event about open science that connects a couple of networks together that are regionally proximal. So there'll be lots of little resources just to stimulate that activity uh, across uh, the different networks worldwide. A second would be an ongoing, well-supported symposium series that would be done virtually so that these different communities that have lots of interesting things happening can share the work that they've been doing uh, with other communities and more broadly. Uh, and then the third would be these working groups uh, of people that have a shared interest, right? Some of these communities are focused on open access. Some are focused on reproducibility and rigor. Some are focused on data sharing. Some are focused on open source software. There's lots of different uh, things that encapsulate uh, open science. And so the goal of the working groups is to provide a vehicle for those shared interests across all of these grassroots communities to, sh to share knowledge. Uh, and if they want to act collectively uh, to try to influence the, a journal or a, a funder or otherwise, this might help to make that a little bit easier. Uh, so that's the, the prompting for this. And of course, any mechanism like this, the, a network of networks only succeeds based on there being lots of networks that have aligned interests, which there are. Uh, and the hope is getting some of this kind of support will then strengthen all of those ties so that those that are really volunteer-based, that are small groups that uh, are acting on their own, now have a support system uh, and connected infrastructure around them uh, to help make their work easier wherever they're doing it. I saw your email about the hashtag open access uh, OA in the USA. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and also kind of circling back to norms and networks, what you think the impact of social media on open science is? Yeah, sure. Two good uh, questions. So the first one, the OA in the USA, this was a surprise. Uh, it wasn't announced uh, by the White House, but somehow information came out that the White House was considering an executive order to uh, convert open access immediately on publication, right? Right now there is a delay of any federally funded research is 12 or 18 months until uh, it can be made uh, openly available or it is to be made. 
uh, and they were considering, no, the day it's published is the day it should be open. Taxpayers paid for it, it should be available to them. So that is an amazing move uh, if it does come out uh, that way for the open access movement. And groups like Spark uh, that have been uh, invested in this for many years uh, in the US, uh, it really just shows the, uh, the effectiveness of the work that they've been doing, uh, pounding at this year after year after year uh, and trying to uh, change uh, the political landscape on it. Uh, so that's very encouraging. There was an immediate pushback uh, from a lot of the commercial players and many of the large scientific societies about the uh, the news. Uh, some of it uh, in the reasonable range of worrying about of immediate transition of that. Well, there's business models that were chain will have to change, and there could be carnage uh, from that. Now, there can be lots of interesting debates about whether that's an appropriate carnage or not, uh, but putting that aside, that's a reasonable issue for them to raise. Then there were other uh, points raised in some of the pushback about uh, that sounded kind of nationalistic or jingoistic, like the U.S. needs to protect itself and making this available will make us lose uh, our advantage over the rest of the world. And that got a lot of negative push, and all of it got pushed back pushback on the pushback uh, from the open access community, but people really reacted strongly to that uh, as not really displaying any values uh, that the scientific community ought to embrace uh, of thinking about science as having national borders. It's, you know, it just didn't make any sense. So the I don't know what's going to happen, whether that executive order will come out uh, as initially expressed, but certainly that is an encouraging signal of how the open access movement has made it to uh, the most, uh, the highest end of policymaking uh, worldwide. You know, and obviously there are places in the EU have gone even further uh, than the U.S. has. But if the U.S. acts, that'll that'll make a big a change. Is this, sorry, just a uh, just a short interaction, but um, this is the plan U. Is this the so that we have the plan S in Europe? Is this the plan U or yeah, yeah, similar to what those kinds of plans are? This has been done independently of that, as far as we are oh, okay. aware. Uh, but uh, but yes, it's related to that in that the demand would be just put everything into PubMed Central right right upon publication that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know that if there is backstory of whether those plans uh, have had some communication uh, or not, uh, or if this was entirely separate. Uh, the other question you had was about so role of social media in advancing the normative change uh, and open science generally. And I think social media is a critical factor in what has helped to accelerate the movement for open science and particularly to break some of those disciplinary silos that have made it harder for this kind of movement in the past uh, to advance, right? The fact that we were able to write a proposal that has a, more than 100 different communities from all over the world for this network of networks thing, that would not have happened uh, without social media. So those kinds of positives are really strong. And, you know, it's, it's fabulous. I, the, the things that I can get from Twitter about what is happening in other communities and get it instantly is an amazing boon to this sort of community grassroots work and the op and the shifting norms. Oh, wow, I see that over in the Alzheimer's research community, they're doing X, Y, and Z. 
I would know nothing about Alzheimer's research uh, um, in my day-to-day -day life just because it doesn't connect to the, uh, the kinds of work that I'm focused on. So huge benefits there. Simultaneously, a lot in the open science movement in social media has been fraught with some of the, uh, the social challenges of a movement, uh, particularly on inclusivity uh, and valuing of diversity of perspectives, of identities, and otherwise. And that can be amplified in the social media environment because of all the things that we know about how social media can go awry. Uh, and there can be dogpiling and uh, massive flame wars that start small but get exaggerated and misunderstanding. So the open science movement is not immune to that in any way uh, compared to how, it, how, how those challenges occur in social media more generally. So that, I th and because a lot of the people in this open science movement care deeply about inclusivity, I think that amplifies the challenge of how do we do that communication well to make sure that everybody that wants to come along uh, and be part of uh, changing the, the research culture toward our values can be part of that. I think it's really weird. There's a limit to research when we have online tools. So we can share things around the world instantly, and yet they're hidden behind paywalls or they're, yeah. they're on someone's memory drive. And it's almost like the online culture, digital society makes these limitations seem even more bizarre than they already were. Yeah, no, I, I agree with it. It's an, in, you know, the, the, emergence of the internet and the way that it has transformed communication more generally just makes all the more insane how scientific scholarly communication is not doing that, right? The persistence of paywalls, the, the length of time that it actually mattered how long the article was because of print concerns, right? There's still even some journals that cap it because they say it printing costs. What are you talking about printing costs? Why do we need to print anything? Like, are you are you crazy? Like, this, what does this matter? Uh, the delay in the delay in publication because of packaging things and issues. Like, how are we still thinking about you know 17th century printing press solutions when we have digital communication? So the scientific communication more broadly has is lags behind. It could be the progressive force, right? Our whole the whole notion of science is pushing out the boundaries of how, what we know and how we do things. But we are extremely conservative in our scholarly communication mechanisms compared to what is happening uh, in the social world. Uh, and I think you're exactly right, is that the, the folks that have grown up in the reality of how we communicate now, it, like, what, why, why is science doing it this way? <laughs> it makes no sense. Uh, and so it, it should be really easy to transition it. But of course, there are very powerful players uh, that are resisting that transition because of uh, very lucrative business models. Um, uh, Brian, yeah. anything else you would like to add before we end? Is there anything? Uh, well, just gratitude that you're doing this uh, work uh, because the kinds of things that communities uh, like yours and ours and all of the others is why this is succeeding. It is the work that we're doing in, in, in parallel and ideally in concert, pushing the same direction that I think is really making the difference uh, for this means rather than just a good idea, is something that's getting implemented in practice.
So Emma, what was your favorite part about the uh, interview besides the fact that you did it under a desk? Yeah, we should probably explain that. So um, normally me and Louisa record these interviews in our other office and that's fine. It's got lots of bookshelves and it's all, it's very nice acoustically. But I was in a different building and I couldn't find anywhere that didn't have an echo because it's a new building and there's a lab that hasn't had scientists move in yet. So I went in there, but it was still echoing. So I was panicking, what can I do? You know, I didn't want to keep Brian waiting. So I literally sat under the desk and pulled the office chairs around me to deaden the noise. So it was like I was waiting for a tornado to hit or something. I recorded the whole episode sitting under a desk. There's a photo, we'll tweet it at some point. So, so would you say that's your favorite place that you've done an done a, uh, episode from? I felt or? very cozy, I must say. It was very, yeah, it was very secure. Yeah, no, it was fun. It was good. It was a really nice interview. And in terms of the actual interview itself, um, I really liked his uh, explanation about pre-registration. I think he's explained it better. And the kind of discussion between him and Louisa about the pros and cons was one of the clearest I've ever uh, heard. This podcast is brought to you by the European-funded Orion Open Science Project. The music is done by Fabio Di Miguel and the sound mixing by... Paulo Oliveira. If you want to get in touch with us, tweet us at OOSP underscore OrionPod or write us an email at Orion at MDC minus Berlin.de. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to the next episode. Bye for now. Bye for now. Bye.